and a very warm welcome to the Humanitarian Policy Group. I'm Sorsha O'Callaghan and I'm the director of HPG. This event is part of HPG's annual advisory group meetings and for the last two years we've, had, we've held these meetings online so it's absolutely fantastic to see so many of you back here at ODI. We've also got over 700 people who registered online, so I'm really looking forward to a lively discussion both in the room um, and online. This evening, we're looking at the politics and the principles of humanitarian action in current conflicts, and we're asking whether being neutral or not taking sides is effective or ethical in situations where civilians are under attack. And I couldn't imagine a better set of speakers to join me in this discussion. On my left, I've got Adelina Kamal, who is the Associate Senior Fellow for the Isias Yusuf Ishak Institute in, in Singapore. Adelina, as many of you know, was formerly the Executive Director of the ASEAN Coordinating Centre for Humanitarian Assistance. To Adelina's left, I'd love to welcome Farooq Habib, who is the Deputy General Manager for the White Helmets um, or, civil, or Syrian Civil Defence. Um, also online, we have Tetiana Stonichi, who is the President of Caritas Ukraine. And to my far left, we've got Fiona Terry, who's the Head of the Centre for Operational Research and Experience for ICRC in Geneva. So first, just a word about the event and the topic tonight. Um, this year, I think there's been many questions about whether humanitarians can and should remain neutral in conflicts such as Ukraine, in Myanmar, in Ethiopia. And many of these questions we all know are not new. There's been lots of talk um, and arguments about the necessity of internationals in particular maintaining a neutral stance in order to gain access in situations of conflict. And while there's been other arguments that uh, neutrality in the face of war is unethical or immoral. Um, so these aren't new debates, these aren't new questions. But I think what is new this year, possibly as a result of Ukraine um, and Myanmar, is growing recognition that taking sides is incredibly difficult and sometimes impossible for people and for local organisations that find themselves at risk or under attack in situations of, of conflict. And I think what we're also seeing is heightened awareness of the reputational risks for some international organisations that are seen to be neutral um, and engaging with different parties to the conflict. And I think the other thing that we're seeing is growing commentating um, within HPG and HPN, and Adelina, you've been amongst them, um, where there's been arguments that there needs to be more support uh, for humanitarian action that's motivated by a different set of principles, whether that's solidarity, resistance, or social injustice. So we've got a lot to discuss. Um, and before I want to, before I turn to the speakers, I want to first encourage everyone who's online to join us in the conversation. Um, I'm going to see your, your comments in the chat and your questions in the Q&A here on my iPad. So please do join the debate. We'll be coming to you for, for questions um, when we come to the discussion. 
Just a reminder that we've got closed captions today, um, which you can access by clicking at the bottom of the screen. And we also have simultaneous translation into Arabic. If you're tweeting, please uh, tag uh, HPG. Um, and um, with that, I'm going to turn first to you, Adelina. So I want to ask you about your article that you wrote for us uh, in the Humanitarian Practice Network. Um, and in the article, you you call for a much more explicitly political approach in relation to Myanmar. Um, and you suggest that ASEAN countries in particular, but humanitarian actors and donor more widely, should stop coordinating humanitarian assistance through the Myanmar junta and work directly and, and, and completely with national organizations and cross-border groups. I wanted to ask you, First of all, why you're making these arguments and what you think uh, the advantages of a more overtly you know, political approach in relation to, to Myanmar would involve. Thank you very much, uh, Sorcha, for having me. Um, and also Wendy for publishing the article in the Human Term Practice Network and providing the, the platform for the different voices. And for me, uh, especially as Indonesian, who care about uh, the people in Myanmar uh, to, to, to help amplify the voices that, that are unheard. Um, so thank you very much for that. In responding to um, your question, uh, uh, why? Why humanitarian assistance? Um, actually, it's actually, it's a process that I went through while I was, the, uh, I was with the ASEAN community, uh, ASEAN stands for the Association of uh, Southeast Asian Nations. It's a regional uh, grouping of 10 uh, ASEAN countries, including Myanmar. I was with the ASEAN Secretary for over 20 uh, years, and then I led the ASEAN Coordinating Center for Humanitarian Assistance, which was established with Indian Ocean Tsunami in mind, the one that uh, happened in 2004. But as Myanmar is a member state uh, of ASEAN, the center that I led, uh, I already finished my assignment uh, last, uh, uh, last year in August. But the center that I led, uh, that was set up with the Indian Ocean Tsunami in mind, was asked by the highest authority in the governments of ASEAN, and these are the heads of state uh, and government, the ASEAN leaders, to provide assistance to the uh, Myanmar uh, 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 people uh, affected by uh, the crisis. And I, when, when this uh, assignment by the political leaders uh, came, to us, uh, came to us, I asked this question, why? What is actually the intent? Yeah? What, is, what are we trying to achieve? Is it just dropping the boxes at the airport? Or really saving human, human lives, protecting their dignity, and so on and so forth? Unfortunately, is this this crisis is very difficult for ASEAN because the, it's happening within the border, and uh, ASEAN because it is intergovernmental organization and a has center working under the ASEAN umbrella, we cannot be independent. Yeah, as long as the military junta is sitting in, uh, inside the governing board and making decision on how humanitarian aid should be uh, uh, managed and directed to the affected population, we cannot be uh, uh, operationally independent. So there were a lot of questions I, I asked myself 
and I left the AHA Center because I finished uh, my term. Um, and then um, I, I had this di dilemma, yeah. And uh, and then there was this the, uh, request by the academic institution, it was the, the CSIS in Indonesia, who asked me to basically answer the question, who should actually be delivering the systems? At that time, ASEAN already lost the trust of the Myanmar people, right? And we couldn't uh, actually go beyond uh, the areas sanctioned by the junta. So I asked this question to myself. I left the center, I left the uh, organization. So I'm, I'm I am an uh, independent individual. And I, I, I went through that uh, difficult process. And then I decided that the one that should actually be delivering the assistance to the Myanmar people are the ones that are trusted by the Myanmar people. And this is not us. Yeah? This is not the political organizations. It's not AHA Center. It's not ASEAN. It's the one trusted by the Myanmar people. Because in a political crisis, when those in dire need are fleeing and hiding from the junta attacks, the how is often more important than the it itself. And the way I see it, leadership is also about letting go. So I wrote this article. Um, well, at first, I don't know what to term this the, you know, approach. Uh, because they, uh, they basically decided that they would not want to work with the junta. And these are the local uh, actors, right? And then I found this article by uh, Hugo Slim, uh, Human to Resistance. It was last year. And then I, I, I said to myself, aha. Yeah, aha. Um, so, Professor, you coined that uh, 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 term. And I must say, it's not a theory. It is being practiced in Myanmar, and it works. What are the advantages? I've seen it. I witnessed it. I went to the border, invited by these local humanitarian actors. Uh, they have other names, border base, you know, um, cross-border aid. But the principle is the same. It completely disengaged the mili military junta. Who are they? They don't come with big trucks crossing the border. They are basically invisible. These are the local groups, ethnic uh, local groups, many of them, operating in ethnic areas along the borders. They have established delivery system of their own. They have decades of experience and expertise of local context. They know how to act swiftly and effectively. They have the flexibility to adapt to changing conditions on the ground. They are resilient, is force resilient born out of survival, is a means of survival. They share hardship with the communities they uh, serve. The, many of them are refugees themselves. And that enabled them to nurture strong bonds and uh, build trust. They are able to organize assistance deep inside uh, the country through cash uh, and informal networks. They don't declare who they are, how they operate, where they operate in some cases. They choose not to pursue funding source that forces them to reveal sensitive information if that information uh, jeopardizes them 
and the, uh, and the groups that they served. And their activities often unreported and did not go to, into the mainstream reports. Again, in a political crisis, it's important to take note, at least in the case of Myanmar, those in dire need are the one fleeing and hiding from the junta. They are invisible from the aid perspective. So how it is provided and who is providing the aid is much more in, important than the aid itself. Um, so why should international aid actors uh, support him to resistance and disengage the junta? I'll give you two reasons. There are many reasons I listed in the, uh, in the paper, but I'll give you two reasons. First, continue relying the junta and expecting that it will cooperate to expand the humanitarian space is hallucination. The junta is the major source of violence. It will only grant access if, if, if it gains political and operational advantages. It will not grant access to population not approved by them. It will never allow neutral access to population in it. Second, there's also scarcity factor that kicks in. Those raising funds for Myanmar must compete with other equally pressing and in some cases more politically visible crises. Not only that the resources are scarce, but some are frozen inside the country. So rather than letting resources inside the fridge and doing very little, is it not more realistic to divert these resources and put the money and efforts somewhere else? So uh, last note from me, there is a long list of reasons for disengaging the junta, which is, by the way, just a military outfit of an ethnic group that happens to be majority called the Bama. They are not only illegal and illegitimate, they are also unconstitutional by the definition of the ASEAN Charter, claimed by those drafting the ASEAN Charter, right? So there is a long list of reasons for disengaging the junta, there is no shortage of options for supporting humanitarian resistance in Myanmar. <clears throat> it's a matter of choice. Most of us do have that choice, the privilege, unlike the local actors. So if we have the choice, and if we have the privilege to do good, why become the good evil? I'll stop at that. There's a huge amount I could pick up there, um, Adelina, but thank you. Um, I'm going to move to Farouk. I'm sure, Farouk, some of the themes that uh, Adelina has been talking about are, are probably familiar to you, but um, maybe just to, to ask you, I know that uh, yeah, the White Helmet started as a small volunteer organization. It's now grown into a major uh, humanitarian organization working in Syria um, and, and in the region. Your work's been recognized across the world, um, but you've also been a target of a major campaign uh, because of your work in opposition-held areas and as uh, outspoken critics of the Syrian government's war crimes. And I wanted to ask you about your position on the principles. I know that you have you know, stated that you you know, apply the principles of impartiality, of humanity and solidarity, but you have a more nuanced uh, 
position in relation to, to neutrality. So I was wondering if you could, you know, describe that to us um, and why you've kind of taken this more nuanced position um, and what that means in practice. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm grateful for uh, this opportunity and this is a, a really an important, important topic which uh, we as, as a group and as volunteers and as management actually have been discussing internally for years. Well, what does it mean and uh, how it's interpreted in, in our context in the Syrian conflict? Because uh, in our experience, this is a local built-up organization. So there was no ready-made package to, to implement. We, we grew up from, from the ground as teams and then as an institution. And uh, in the beginning, in the early stages, when we uh, had the first meeting for the leaders of the different groups from different parts in Syria, that was in uh, October 2014. And when they realized that they have been doing pretty much the same work in saving lives, but they did not meet, meet each other as before, they agreed on a charter of principles. And they agreed on a unified uh, uniform and uh, coordination mechanism. That was the, the, the birth of the Syria civil defense or the White Hills as a national organization. At that time, 2014, at the Charter of Principle, we agreed on principles of uh, humanity, impartiality, and neutrality. But from our perspective as a local group in the Syrian war, where there were so many different regime allies groups and opposition groups fighting each others on power neutrality meant to us that we don't take a stance and we as an organization we have no position about who should rule the future of in future syria what kind of rule is it uh, presidential or parliament is it left or right labor or conservative we have no position uh, on this as an organization we uh, never thought that other organizations may understand and interpret neutrality that we should be neutral between the pilot who drops a bomb and the child who is killed by this bomb that we, some someone might think that we should be neutral between the checkpoint which puts the siege on the civilians and those who starve to death in the besieged village or city. By time, the organization grew and we had our external relations and partnerships and we started to get uh, maybe more uh, direct experience with how other organizations understand neutrality and interpret. And here we had really uh, any disagreements and disputes because uh, from one side, we are humanitarian workers delivering humanitarian assistance, life-saving assistance, indeed, on the ground. But at the same time, some of our activities are human rights activities. So we have this range from humanitarian to human rights. We pull the, uh, the injured person and the victims from under rubble after the airstrikes to uh, take them to hospitals. But at the same time, we document what we do and we share it with the uh, human rights organizations and with the accountability mechanisms. 
we uh, help rescuing the people uh, after the chemical attacks but at the same time we take samples from from the site and share them with the OPCW for example so uh, and and we felt we we felt that this is part of our humanitarian mandate we never felt that there is a contradiction between the humanitarian work and the human rights work as long as we are committed to impartiality so we never question an injured person about political views or religion or ethnicity or, or whatever we rescue everyone we provide assistance to everyone wherever we have access and uh, can deliver our uh, services with uh, the required independence indeed and at the same time we bear responsibility as witnesses to these war crimes and some of our colleagues were direct victims of the uh, war crimes themselves and uh, we realized as as people on the ground because those white and volunteers at the end they are community uh, based groups from their own communities they are rescuing their own families and neighbors and uh, they realize that the uh, there will be no end for the suffering of of the of the people uh, if we don't deal with the roots of the problem not only the symptoms so we realized after we got, we got so many ambulances for example and they were bombed by the airstrikes by the syrian regime or the russians we we start telling the donors please we don't want more money we don't want you to send us more ambulances that the russians are burning in syria we want you to find a way to stop the airstrikes and to stop the shelling and save your money here definitely from one side the the perpetrators of the crimes increase their disinformation campaign because for any criminal the main enemy after committing the crime is the witness and the rescue workers are the first witnesses so we became targeted by uh, the Russian obsession and all this disinformation uh, and physically on the ground we lost 292 of our colleagues who were killed, killed in double tap airstrikes and uh, from the other side we started to face these questions by the traditional humanitarian actors about neutrality they are used to only deliver direct assistance without uh, naming who is responsible of the suffering, without doing anything concrete to deal with the reasons for uh, this suffering. They would, uh, uh, for example, procure and uh, distribute food assistance in the regime controlled areas and at the same time they will fund procurement of food baskets in besieged areas and they will pay five or ten times or sometimes 15 times double the price to get the food to the besieged areas and they will never say why the price is different they know that 80 percent of the donors money they spent on procurement goes to the checkpoints they think that they are helping the poor people who are starving in the besieged areas yes they are helping them, but they, at the same time, they are fueling the war machine and they are encouraging the checkpoints to tighten the siege and to increase the price again. So all these questions 
were raised and we realized that regardless how the word interpret neutrality for us the priority is the solidarity with our people we stand with the victims and it doesn't matter much for us anymore if that is considered neutral or not it's about the human lives themselves thanks for also i mean we're just going to run out of time so quickly in this discussion but i want to turn now to Tatiana and Tatiana, we're so grateful for you to take the time to join us this evening. Since the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, what we've seen in, in amongst the Ukrainian community is it's a mass civil society effort that has bonded together both to defend um, and also support communities. And against this backdrop, Caritas Ukraine is the largest humanitarian organization providing strictly humanitarian support. Um, we've been talking a lot about politics and neutrality, but when we spoke, uh, Tatiana, you said for you the most important principles in, in the work that you're doing are solidarity and humanity. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that, um, you know, and how you're seeing this playing out in practice? Yes. Uh, thank you, Sorsha. Thank you for um, having me with you today. And uh, I'm also really honored to be with such a distinguished panel uh, of speakers. Um, so uh, to comment on our experience in Ukraine, the Caritas experience in responding to the humanitarian crisis, um, really huma um, that the principle of humanity, um, the principles of impartiality, those are the things that have been not only guiding principles for us, but I think that they've been um, dr a driving force, a driving force in the way that we've responded but not only um, Caritas, as you mentioned, all of civil society in Ukraine. Um, you might remember in those first days um, after the, the full-scale attacks began uh, at the end of February of this year, that there was a huge um, kind of rising of, of solidarity and resilience um, in Ukraine. And I can speak what it was like for us in our centers. We had been preparing for the um, for a possible influx of a large number of displaced people, of people in transit. And uh, so we had some things in place, but we were really uh, surprised by the great number of volunteers that showed up on our doorsteps. And initially the supplies that we were providing were actually supplies um, that people were bringing from their homes. It was all the things that were needed to provide um, something warm to drink, something warm to eat, um, special supplies for children, um, a warm place to sleep, um, clothing. All those things were something that was being provided by the local communities themselves initially. Um, and what we witnessed at that time was really um, a fabric of society um, that had just knit together. Yeah, and everybody had their role. Yeah, there was a role um, for volunteers there was a role for civil society. There was a role for businesses. There was a role um, for local government. But when you think about, you know, again, what is it that's that driving force, uh, the driving force of humanity, of the, the hum that principle of humanity? Um, so I'd like to unpack that piece a little bit um, to think about what it is, uh, what is this principle of humanity? Um, so it's something that reflects the very essence of our being. Yeah. It's something that's common to all. Yeah. So, you know, when you think about humanitarian aid, you're thinking about those people that you're offering the aid to. Yeah. 
and um, this ability to see their humanness, yeah, and to respond to that human need that you see in front of you. But I, I want to point out that, and what we found in our work in Caritas, that it's not just the people who are receiving the aid, the people in need. Um, it's also the people who are offering the aid. It's being able to see that humanity in yourself and in the other. Um, it's revealing the humanity in the other and revealing that humanity in yourself. And it becomes part of uh, kind of that beauty, yeah, that beauty of humanitarian aid, that beauty of um, the human dignity of the person, yeah, that you see it. And, you know, in, in being able to see the other, one of the things that's really important, I think, is, again, um, to understand uh, what it means to be human, what it means to have that humanity. And, um, you know, in that you have different components of what it means to be human. Yes, we have our physical selves. Yes, yeah? so we need the, the material things, yeah, that need uh, the assistance. But what we found, and I was really um, happy to hear uh, uh, Adelina mention this, that um, material needs are only half of the story of humanitarian aid. What we found was that we really need the other half. It's the psychosocial support. It's meeting a person who's come out of a traumatic situation with great empathy. And that there's something healing that happens in that moment, both for the person receiving the aid or registering and for the person who is giving the aid. Um, the other piece that's really important that we found is a sense of community. So when people come to receive aid uh, at our centers, um, what they encounter is not just, again, a physical package. They encounter someone who's there to listen to them, to hear them, yes, and to help restore a sense of trust and of um, agency, yeah, to give them something that's going to help them in their next step of life, to go, to stand up again and to start walking. <clears throat> At the same time, I think that they also encounter a sense of community. Uh, it's a sense that allows you to keep going. Yeah? So you have that first moment of need, of, of encounter, but then how do you sustain that? How do you keep it going? How do you keep the resilience going? And I think the way that that happens is through community. It's through community, it's through um, solidarity, it's through restoring trust between people. Yeah? Um, so when you think about, um, uh, you know, when you think about violence and war, yeah? so violence and war, it rips at this core of what it means to be human. It rips at this core of relationship. Yeah, it destroys trust. And in some ways, um, what we're finding is that humanitarian aid, it works counter to that. Um, humanitarian aid restores that peace um, where there is an attempt to destroy it, it puts it back in place. It restores a sense of trust, it restores a sense of uh, relationship, a healthy relationship, and it restores a sense of humanity. Um, you know, it, again, if you, you think about, you know, what is it that we're created for? Yeah? How do we find a fullness of life? Yeah, we find it through relationships. That's why um, the sense of humanity and a sense of solidarity is so key, I think, to humanitarian aid. Um, and we find um, that there's something restoring uh, that happens. So we, you know, we have many examples of people who have come to us to receive aid. Um, they receive aid, they receive the help, they are able to stand, and then they come back and they volunteer. We have many um, people who are displaced who have come back to us to volunteer, or sometimes they'll come in and they'll become our staff members. Um, and I, I know 
when I do my field visits and I visit our staff in different locations, always, every single visit I have, there's always at least one staff member who's thanking me, yeah, that they can be part of this movement of Caritas and how this movement of doing humanitarian aid, of helping others, of going out of yourself and seeing another person is healing. Yeah. Um, I guess, um, I think my main point of what I would like to, to offer is that um, in humanitarian aid and in the principle of humanity, it's not just the other, the person in need, yeah? That there's a humanity in each of us, yeah? And so that humanitarian aid um, needs to restore humanity in the whole complex of the act, yeah? So in the person receiving and in the person who's giving. Um, and I think that that remaining human is part of what will give you sustainability to continue on in the future. Super interesting, Tatiana, and I think a lot of kind of similar themes around identity and um, solidarity, but also that kind of relationships of, of trust. Um, and I'm sure that will come up more in the discussion. Fiona, I wanted to point to come to you now. I was particularly interested to have you on this panel because You've been a neutrality skeptic in the past, um, and um, you wrote a really interesting blog uh, this year that talked about um, neutrality and how important it was um, for ICRC and how you had come round to, to seeing neutrality as a really essential tool for IC, ICRC in particular. And what I found particularly interesting about that blog, as you know, um, is that it, um, it talked about uh, solidarity and neutrality as being interlinked. Um, and what I find about some of the discussions that are being had at the moment around kind of new debates around kind of resist humanitarian resistance and uh, new forms of, of neutrality and alternative forms of humanitarian action is that it pits these two against each other. Um, that solidarity is for certain types of organizations, often national organizations um, who are of the people and international organizations are, are neutral because they take a different approach. And you have an interesting angle on that. So I wanted to hear more about that, um, how you see that playing out in practice in particular. Okay, thanks, Sosha. And thanks for the invitation to be on here. I mean, it's very interesting for me that 20 years ago I was debating the other side in MSF's um, debates and, you know, advocating to get rid of neutrality from the Charter. And here I am uh, sitting before you today with an opposite point of view. So I'll start with that second question about solidarity versus neutrality. I mean, not even in a Google dictionary does are these terms opposed. And I really think that we have to consider the juxtaposition of, of these two ideas. I don't think they're, they're opposites. I think humanitarian action is the greatest way of showing solidarity with members of our fellow humanity that Tatiana was, was speaking about. That is humanitarian action. When we think about the principles of humanitarian action, okay, we have humanity at the top and the logical uh, if we logically believe that everybody has an equal right to, um, to a dignified life uh, on earth, then we will treat everyone with impartiality, not making any distinction between who they are, but only on the greatest needs. So those are the two most essential principles. Under that, we have really what are, are operational postures. Neutrality is an operational posture. It is not a moral principle. It is about 
trying to work out how best to reach those people that are most in need in countries uh, in, in uh, war and disaster. And it's one posture. Other ones could be adopted. I think it's very important to have independence as well because you can't be truly neutral until, unless you are independent. So, so I will explain this a little bit more through my conversion. So in the early 90s, <laughs> I did some, uh, I worked in some pretty horrendous uh, humanitarian emergencies. Somalia, and I see Valerie in the front here, we both were 1992 in the Somalia famine together. Um, I worked, but it was particularly Rwanda, which, which really made me think, how can we talk about neutrality? How can you be neutral between uh, genocidaire and their victims. There is no room for neutrality here. There are people who have committed the greatest crime against humanity and there are their victims. And, and so it, it doesn't exist, neutrality. In fact, it's, it's worse than that. It's putting the perpetrators and their victims on equal footing. And so I was really against that. I said, we should be speaking out, we should be taking sides. And that was how I felt. And then when I joined the ICRC, I understood a little bit better once the veil of secrecy over ICRC was lifted and I actually started to see how the ICRC worked. I really questioned what I had thought before and I realised that exactly that, that it's not a principle, it's not a moral principle, there's nothing intrinsically morally good about being neutral, it is simply a way of operating. And it was really understanding what Philip Gaillard, the head of ICRC, had done in Rwanda during the genocide that for me was the most illustrative um, notion of, of what neutrality means for the ICRC. So Philip Gaillard was the head of delegation in the makeshift hospital in Kigali, uh, which, which was run with MSF and, and ICRC. And every day he would take an ambulance out around Kigali and he would stop at checkpoints and he would try to pick up anybody who was still alive. And then he had to get back to the hospital going through checkpoints. And so he got out of the, of the ambulance at each checkpoint. He'd take a beer. I didn't write that in the blog, but he took a beer. And he would sit next to the Interahamway, who still sometimes had a machete dripping with blood. And he would talk to him. He would show him. He would be neutral. He wouldn't, he wouldn't rage at him and show him his disgust at what this person was doing. He just wanted to get those ambulances through to the hospital. And that for me is the idea of the operationalization of a neutral. It's just not showing your emotions. None of us are neutral inside. All of us have passion and have, um, you know, feelings and, and uh, you know, dislikes and likes, but, um, but it's to not show them in order to be able to get the maximum access you possibly can. Well, does it always work? Of course, it doesn't work. And we can see today there ICRC is under a lot of criticisms, neutrality is under a lot of criticisms because we can only access hundreds and not thousands of, of prisoners of war, Ukrainian prisoners of war and, and Russian prisoners of war. So it doesn't always work. But this is not new. It hasn't always worked through our history. Think back to the 80s, think back to the Khmer Rouge camps that we never got access to. Think about Al-Shabaab areas today in Somalia. You know, there is a terrible famine looming in Somalia and we cannot get access to Al-Shabaab areas. So neutrality doesn't always work, and that's clear. There are plenty of moral and ethical dilemmas that we face and we have to make judgment calls. Um, but, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. And sometimes, you know, principles can clash. Sometimes we have to compromise on, 
on areas of, for instance, impartiality in order to have perceptions of neutrality. This was the case in Darfur when we were trying to, when we had trucks going to to the villages where the where the farmers, the African farmers were. We didn't want them to leave and go to the IDP camps. We know how difficult it is to get them back. But these trucks had to go past the Janjaweed dam rats on the way. And you know, they wanted food as well. And we said, but you don't need food. We've done an assessment. This is not what you need. And how long can you keep negotiating before you realize it becomes dangerous actually for the people you're delivering the food to? So we compromised on our impartiality in order to have a better perception of neutrality by giving food to everyone. Very pragmatic decision. So it's often very difficult to, you know, to navigate these different principles. I feel that sometimes at the moment we are we could be you know being an easy scapegoat for the failure of political authorities to be um, taking their responsibilities because the Geneva Conventions has been ratified by every state in the world and the Geneva Conventions say that it is an obligation to um, respect but also to ensure respect for the Geneva Conventions okay so there are obligations higher order responsibilities of states to be also acting um, on, on this behalf. I think it's really important to remember that humanitarian action is only necessary when others have either unable or unwilling, the states responsible are either unwilling or, um, uh, or unable to meet their higher order responsibilities and we don't necessarily inherit their, um, their responsibilities from them. So in my studies, I also considered, because I really looked into the ICRC's practice of neutrality in Afghanistan and Sudan in particular, and I also looked, considered what abandoning neutrality might look like, because I think that's really important. And, after, and when you think about after 9-11, there was a complete negation at that time, so you know, 10 years ago, uh, tw sorry, 20 years ago, with the war on terror, so many voices were claiming that it's the end of humanitarianism, that we can never, never um, uh, be neutral again. But a couple of thoughts, because we didn't abandon neutrality, and I think there's a couple of thoughts we need to bear in mind if we do, as an international organisation like the ICRC, that if we abandon neutrality in one place, then it's not going to be respected anywhere. It's going to be a domino effect. I don't think you know, it's like pregnancy. You can't be a bit pregnant, you can't be a bit neutral. You either have to be consistent um, or not. And I think that's really important to remember. And that in some cases, um, who are the aggressors and who are the victims is very clear cut. We can think of a few examples today. But in other cases, not so clear cut. And in my experience, you know, you can't necessarily trust humanitarian organisations to go in there and be able to make a snap political decision and suddenly decide who's right and wrong in this conflict. And I think it's also important to remember that sometimes today's freedom fighters become tomorrow's warlords. If you think back to the Mujahideen, very much supported uh, during the war, and as soon as the Soviets pulled out, they turned their guns on each other, and there, more destruction was caused in Kabul from those factions than was caused in the entire uh, Soviet in, um, time in Afghanistan. I think Afghanistan also showed us, you know, the price of abandoning neutrality when the aid community was very much uh, encouraged to say that it, the humanitarian system is over, now it's a development time, in order to try to push the legitimacy of the Karzai regime outside Kabul to the provinces. Of course, the Taliban was still active and becoming stronger, 
And so many NGOs went along with that plan. Fortunately, the ICRC didn't. We kept working on both sides. But what happened to some of those organisations that decided only to work in government-held areas, they started to get attacked and they lost access to all the areas which were held by the Taliban, which, as we all know, grew. And now today, guess who is in power? The Taliban. So we have pretty privileged access or, and discussions and dialogue with the Taliban. We have a relationship with them. So, um, so I'm glad that you know, that's, that's the outcome. Look, I think humanitarians are really right to question themselves. I've been critiquing the aid industry for the last 20 years and not holding back. Um, but I think that pitching one form of action against another is to lose sight sometimes of what is important. There's always been complementarity um, in, in our work. ICRC's bilateral confidential discussions with war criminals you know, is absolutely strengthened when there are other organisations on the outside saying other things like Human Rights Watch or, or MSF. MSF manages to combine action and public criticism, um, but ICRC has a very different mandate and we have different self-imposed charters and we can be very complementary with each other. So I think sometimes public denunciation feels good. I've done it myself <laughs> when I was with MSF, not with ICRC. Um, but it doesn't necessarily improve the situation for those we seek to help. Um, we have difficult dilemmas and choices that will only be revealed as right or wrong over time. And I think sometimes we need to let time work through some of these issues. So I think that we need to change the, the, the discourse a little bit and not oppose solidarity to neutrality because it really doesn't make sense. But I think that we can definitely recognise the complementarity that we are all practising across um, in trying to do the best for humanity because at the end of the day it's what all, we're all trying to do. Fantastic. I hear some quite similar themes around solidarity um, and humanity and some very different <laughs> emphasis. Um, I've got a huge amount of questions actually for all of you, but I'm not going to take that privilege. I'm going to ask that we pass the mic around the room. I think we've got two HPG colleagues here um, who have mics, so maybe if you can stand up and if anyone would like to ask a question, we'll take three questions uh, from the audience, uh, maybe a few more. Um, I've got questions coming online, actually on my phone, so apologies, um, because I think there's something wrong with the laptop. But first, we'll, we'll come to the room. So who'd like to go first? Sarah. Thank you, and thank you very much, everyone, for uh, yeah, such a, a compelling set of uh, observations. I'm, I've long believed that the best humanitarian action we can have is really one that is generally complementary. But we have progressively made what was a valuable and right operational model for the ICRC, in particular, the model for everyone. And in reality, there is a stigma associated to humanitarian action that is not neutral and impartial, even though those should be operational principles and not really, you know, the absolute principle that for me remains humanity above all. How do we reconcile that? How do we really move to a humanitarian action that is really complementary and doesn't force everyone into a straitjacket that expects every humanitarian to be like the ICRC? I think it's a really interesting question, but I think you could almost argue the opposite, 
as well, that there's now also a stigma emerging around being neutral in certain crises. So I think this question about complementarity is, is quite possible. But if we, we really want to root our action in what is essential for people, we can't ignore that demand for solidarity and justice that to many people is more important than the principles that were developed in a European nation hundred and whatever many years ago. So, I mean, to me it's important to reflect there are other traditions of humanitarian action we don't have as you know a particular western <laughs> icc dunantist center tradition that doesn't have to be the only way our instinct to help others when they are in need has to be um delivered that's many thank you i'll take another question i'm an independent uh, is this working yeah maybe yeah, just i can hear you okay maybe Two points that, uh, first, thank you very much. Very interesting discussion. Um, two points that the question is, what do you think of those points? The first is, if we think about humanity, I think about you know human beings pretty, pretty f fraught with difficulties and not reaching right conclusions and everything else. And you look at a humanitarian system that over the last few years has really been looking at itself and saying, wait a second, discrimination, racism, you know, <laughs> you know a, a sort of macho culture all of these things lead me to believe that it's kind of remarkable that we can sit around and think that the, that the system would be able to take the right decisions and that it would be able to to somehow eliminate bias and decide on some kind of very neutral way which side to sit on in in terms of a you know a, a very difficult conflict situation so I, i'm really wondering why we wouldn't err is sort of in the other direction of let's not even wade into that kind of decision-making because we're not so good at it. We've got an institutional track record of not being so good at it. And secondly, when I look, and I'll, I'll take American politics as an example, when I look at the politicization of, of ideas and opinions and the way in which our, our perceptions are being, you know, algorithmically, let's say, curated, I start to see a contradiction between sympathizing with a position which i think is solidarity and the ability to empathize with with the opposite position with people on the other side and for me the principle of humanity is i can empathize with people who i don't agree with even if i don't sympathize with them but i see a real contradiction once you jump into a position of solidarity with that capacity that that capacity of humanity to empathize with the other side so i'm wondering what people think about that Interesting. Well, I think we have another question here, um, and then we'll take it. Actually, we'll take one more, um, and then we'll come back to the panel. Ahmed, and um, no, this was a very interesting discussion, um, and you've raised quite important points. Um, just one uh, query uh, to all the panelists is: um, I think one of the assumptions here is. Um, the humanitarian system or the humanitarian architecture is all just the traditional human uh, institutional actors. What about civic aid? What about diasporas? What about private sector? How do you see that? Because at the moment you're talking about it as if it's a, a system that you sign up to um, in terms of the humanitarian principles, but other actors just don't know about it or don't care for it. So how do you advocate um, uh, the engagement? Thank you. And just a question back to you 
Bashir, do you see these other actors um, that are providing essential humanitarian support? Um, you know, do you see the principles being in any way relevant to them? Uh, issues around, you know, anything that we've heard about Tatiana talking about humanity and impartiality, intervals of solidarity or of neutrality? I think it depends on the context and I think it varies and um, how organized um, in terms of like for, in our work um, at Shabaka in terms of uh, diaspora engagement, this is actually changing quite a bit. Um, they do listen to, um, some of them do see these principles. However, this is evolving because also there's practicalities They understand what's, uh, you know, specific local context, what's needed. So for them, it's just not fit for purpose uh, for many of them. So I think it's also a question for the institutional humanitarian actors is you maintaining a system um, that uh, is uh, sidelining other actors. Okay, thanks very much. And we have another question up here at the front. Um, thank you, I'm Suzanne Jaspers, research associate at SOAS. Um, um, very persuasive presentations, both kind of looking at or, or highlighting need for solidarity and um, neutrality. And I mean, related to the first one, just I mean, I, I guess uh, my own uh, recent experience as a local responder um, to assist asylum seekers in the UK has just kind of brought home to me how just how difficult it is to be neutral when, you know, the suffering is so clearly a um, result of government policies. But the key point I wanted to just kind of uh, ask the panel about is to um, think about you know, the direction in which humanitarian action has been going in the last few years. I mean, we're, I mean, if you, the kind of things I've been working on as things like quantitative assessments, remote management, digital technologies, I mean, all of that is pulling us in a different direction and it, it challenges both solidarity and neutrality, I think. Um, you know, we have less understanding of the social and political context, um, you know, I think solidarity and humanity is, is, is more difficult when you're not present on the ground, when I mean, you don't have that proximity. And as you know, somebody else has just mentioned, I mean, the private sector engagement, I mean, has kind of massively increased with the rise in the use of digital technology. So it's, um, and these are not necessarily, I mean, those companies are not necessarily motivated by humanitarian concerns. So yeah, I mean, your thoughts about, you know, what does that mean in terms of you know, being neutral or being more of a solidarity kind of approach. Okay, fantastic. Um, Tatiana, can we turn to you first? Um, I don't know if you got all those questions, but there were questions around, I guess, the more technical um, and remote management approach to humanitarian action and whether it's possible to be principled when you're also um, uh, engaging in a, in a remote way. Um, lots of discussions around um, kind of questions around the traditional sector um, and whether we're, we're talking about a very traditional um, form of approaches and it's different for other actors. Uh, talking about the, the links or not between empathy and solidarity. So maybe if you want to pick up some of these themes and uh, respond to them. Yeah, I mean, I. I think from our experience in Ukraine, uh, what we're seeing is that if you really want to be a humanitarian actor, yeah, you you have to go all the way. Yeah, it's not again, it's not just um, you know delivery of uh, material things is half of the story. Yeah, 
um, it, at least in, I think, you know, especially in a war context, yeah, where there's trauma, where there's people who've experienced various levels of trauma. So, um, you know, when you think about that, I think actually, you know, remotely uh, assisting, I think it's actually uh, really easy to hold to kind of theoretical or lofty principles when you're far removed um, in some ways, but when you're on the ground, yeah, when you're encountering the people who have suffered, when you yourself are suffering in a way, yeah, um, it puts a different, um, uh, I don't know, an intensity and a realness to the situation. And it's not necessarily that you lose, I don't think that you lose the humanitarian principles, but you live them in a more deep way. Yeah, there's a depth to them and there's a fullness that comes when, when you're there yeah? and when you're encountering um, people, when you're encountering people um, in their need and in their trauma through what they're living. Uh, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, in, in terms of kind of technicality of how you run humanitarian aid, how you do the, you know, the databases and the counting and the, all those pieces, um, I, I think that, you know, there's a time for everything. Yeah, there's a time in, a, in, in the middle of a crisis when something happens, when you need to just respond. Yeah, you just respond and you do the best that you can. Yeah, and then there's times when, uh, you know, when it's good that you, you need to have it be ordered. Yeah, uh, so, you know, I mean, I can even say, you know, in a, uh, you know, in the context of, of war, war brings chaos. Yeah, and so a good thing, it's good to have order. You know, order brings security. It brings a sense of, you know, also psychological well-being. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't think that it has to be one or the other. I think it's a matter of choosing, you know, when is the appropriate time for which kind of action. And maybe, um, you know, what was talked about this idea of complementarity. I really like that. Yeah. That you don't have to have cookie cutter, um, you know, cookie cutter organizations. You don't have to have cookie cutter ways of responding. Yeah. So for, I mean, you know, as an example, um, uh, you know, in the beginning, so we don't have big trucks, you know, in Caritas. Um, we had, um, we were able to do small minivans uh, distributing. Sometimes we did order trucks. We had larger um, distributions. But uh, one of the things, um, you know, we had all these horizontal um, connections between our centers. And when you talk about solidarity, like when we encountered a problem that suddenly we couldn't have access to trucks or to minivans, um, but then somebody came up with this idea that there's um, uh, trains that are evacuating people, yeah, and then um, they're going back empty. And so our centers in the West figured out, oh, let's fill the these passenger trains up with humanitarian aid to get the aid back to the East where it's really needed. And so, um, I, you know, there's like a creativity that comes from national, small, like you find answers to things in a in a quicker way, but it doesn't mean you know, that the large convoys aren't important also, yeah? That there's a there's a place for everything. Yeah? And what's important is that everyone sees the role of the other, yeah? And that there isn't, um, you know, it's not one person that wins the show. And what, I think that's one of the lessons that, it, that we're learning in Ukraine. There's no one single person that's solving all the problems. There's no one single organization. It's actually when you have everybody who's working together and each is playing their role and each is finding um, that piece. And it's a really, I think, you know, it's a powerful witness of, of humanitarian aid, uh, I think. Yeah. I don't know if that answers the question. Thanks, Tatiana. 
Um, Farouk, I'm wondering if you want to pick up some of these questions, but I'm also getting questions, um, many of them actually, about whether uh, neutrality is a luxury for people who are not directly affected by the conflict is one of them. Um, and the other one is uh, whether there are kind of double standards um, in relation to, to neutrality. Um, and so whether, you know, and, and I think Ukraine is the example that they're providing, but they're saying that on the one hand, governments are providing arms to Ukraine, but on the other hand, are asking national organizations to be neutral. And so kind of picking up Sarah's point about the kind of stigma um, about being not neutral. And so I'm wondering, do you want to talk a little bit about this? Because I know you, you spoke about this when we, when we met. I don't want to say that neutrality is a luxury for us because we we have disagreements about the definition and interpretation of neutrality itself. So I'm telling you from local perspective, we see it one thing from us when we dealt with the international major big agencies, it meant different things for them. But in a specific context, yes, I would tell you when uh, a hospital uh, is bombed or a civil defense uh, center. So some organizations in, in the Syria context would say uh, our hospital was bombed. That's it. But when we when you know that there is only one force in Syria which has war jets. And they, they, it cheers about bombing what they call the, the centers which helps the terrorists or, or whatever. And when you have your own volunteers and doctors and nurses in that hospital, which was bombed. So for us, yes, when an international partner says, no, you shouldn't name who bombed the hospital, you should stay neutral. It looks too much luxury for us. It's our people who were killed in the hospital. So no, we cannot say our hospital was bombed. We would say that it's a Russian warplane which bombed our hospital. If we, definitely, if you are sure that, it's a Russian war thing. That's in response to your first question, first question. The second about double standards. Yes, we felt it. It's related to the luxury as well. So for example, when the perpetrator of the uh, violation or the war crime is an Islamist group, and uh, we document that violation, we report it, we speak about it. No one questions our neutrality. That's normal, no one talks about it. But if the perpetrator is the uh, US or Russia or the government, and we report it or we talk about it, at that time we start receiving these questions and criticisms, oh no, you are not neutral, you shouldn't take a side or talk about them. So that's really, yes, frustrating for people on the ground and it actually fuels extremism. These double standards are always one of the main reasons which fuel extremism because those people who look at these different cases and they say that it's only when, in the, in the, when the, the Islamists do something, there is specific treatment and specific standards, but when a government does something, they have different standards. I'm going to turn to you next, Adeline. There are a lot of questions from the audience, so you may want to pick up one or two of them. But also, I wanted to ask you a question that's come online. Um, so specifically in relation to Myanmar, where um, the UNTA is using humanitarian 
uh, aid as a mechanism to entice civilians uh, into specific areas um, and to corral them um, into to certain areas. Um, and whether um, in, in, you know, in relation to this, um, how should humanitarians respond? And are we seeing a kind of an issue where neutrality is trumping do no harm? So it's a specific question in relation to Myanmar I wanted to ask you, but also I think there's lots of, of issues for you to respond from the audience as well. So I'll allow you to, to choose between those questions. Thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, before I uh, flew to London, I was actually in a discussion to, with fellow Indonesians who all care about the, the situation in Myanmar. And one of them uh, told me what, what is currently happening in Myanmar, the coup uh, that happened uh, uh, last uh, year in February, it happened actually before in 1988. Um, and it took 12 it took actually 12 years for uh, what you call that election to happen, right? So it's going to be a, a long haul. What the coup that just happened uh, last year, basically the patterns are the same, but the packaging is different, okay? So so they know all these motives, right? They know all the, uh, these motives. Uh, it's basically about uh, power, it's about uh, money. It's about you know everything bad. It's as if that you would uh, live uh, hundred or thousand years <laughs> in this world, right? Um, so anyway, uh, it's just the packaging that is different. So you have you have experienced that in 1998. You flew and you became this local humanitarian activist, right? And then it happened again last year. Uh, and it happened even more. And then more people, not only the ethnic groups and the Rohingya, right, that suffered uh, this, but also the, the this so-called uh, Mama people. And they were all surprised because they thought, you know, they, should, they shouldn't be the target. <laughs> but apparently they, they become the targets. So it's, it's so, uh, so it's, but the, the, the intent is the same, it's just that the packaging is different and is even worse now and you have seen this before and the would we expect that the victims would actually believe that uh, there is a, any good intent so that's one second um so if the local humanitarian actors who uh, who were actually the victims and ref refugees uh, themselves, they're too busy discussing about neutrality and humanitarian principles. <laughs> Just too busy. They're busy actually paying attention to the people. Um, and 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 the way you know they see it, there are these communities, their children killed, right? they may share the same ethnicity but they're also uh, others who help and they're, they're coming from different uh, ethnicity they must be helped and they 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 know the patterns 12 you know from 1988 and it's happening again and it's even worse what do you expect mm. right so so okay i was also in another discussion and i was accused of being black in black and white that I don't actually promote complementarity, mm. but it's not me who who put you know 
the situation into black and white. It's the junta that created the situation into black and white and forced us, the international human actors and the regional human actors, to choose which side you are on. Interesting. And it was already 1988, we yeah. have seen it even more, the Rohingyas are the example. And now the bummer, the ethnic, uh, you know, the, the majority of ethnic group also suffer. Are we going to fall into the trap again? The black hole again? I mean, I've got questions. I think one thing that you brought up, uh, Fiona, was around this kind of consistency issue and how you manage when the politics shift. And I guess what you're saying, or I'm hearing from you, Adelina, is that, um, you know, when you have these repeated situations, the ability to kind of have a more compromised or complementarity approach becomes really challenging because you know the politics in the situation, you know the reality on the ground, and therefore the ability to kind of decide that you're going to be neutral or to try to adopt a more compromising position becomes more challenging over time. Yeah. And I think what I've heard from you is slightly different in terms mm. of, you know, um, once the politics change in a certain environment, um, you need to have demonstrated neutrality over time in order to demonstrate <coughs> consistency. And, I, you know, it's, I think it's very important for ICRC to be seen to be kind of being consistent over time and wondering if you want to pick up on this issue. Um, there's a lot of other questions that came up from the audience as well. So, you know, that and 10,000 yeah. others. Yeah. I just wanted to come back to the point that you made because I, I'm not sure I agree with the framing of the idea that neutrality puts a block on us thinking about the negative, unintended negative consequences yeah. of our action. You know, you talked about people being put into forced displacement camps. We can look back at Ethiopia in 1984-85, you know, humanitarian aid was used as a trap in order to get people to sign up and then were forcibly displaced to the south of the country where a lot of them died because they had no tolerance to malaria. There's nothing about neutrality in that, you know, this was complicity of the aid organisations. This is a moral dilemma and a dilemma by definition does not have a right or wrong answer and you have to determine how much good and how much harm are you going to do by staying and working in that? If you pull out, what happens to the population? If you stay, are you complicit? But this is not about neutrality mm. for me. Neutrality does not put a blanket, oh, the humanitarian imperative at all costs. No, no, no. So I just wanted to, I want to just pick up quickly on the diaspora question because um, well, Suzanne and I have worked a bit on Somalia and it's interesting to see that the diaspora support for Somalia is like four or five times the entire aid program. So why a diaspora would, would want to come into the aid program, I don't know. It goes, it goes directly to families and clan-based. The problem is for, and so humanitarian aid agencies really need to recognize where this money is coming from and who it's helping. Because as Tufts University's great studies of the um, 2011 and 12 famine showed, that it was the people with diaspora support who survived the famine. It was the people, the Rahanwain and the Bantu and the minority clans who had no such diaspora support who died. And so I think that we need to, yeah, we need to be complementary with the diaspora, at least to know where is this money going? Who is 
who has a social safety net under them and who doesn't and then uh, and, and come in with that. Sorry, I didn't answer your question. That's fine. Um, <laughs> we've got time for one more question from the audience. Um, I'm, and so who's going to put their hand up for the final question? Nima. <coughs> Um, maybe we can get the mic over here, so we can hear you online. Good evening, everyone. My name is Nima Hassan. I'm the director of the Somali NGO Consortium, based in Somalia. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you very much. This is um, a great discussion um, on, on, on the issue, but I just wanted to pick up maybe a slightly different dilemma that uh, humanitarian actors are facing currently in Somalia. Um, on this government offence against Al-Shabaab, um, where the government is sort of pushing humanitarian to humanitarian actors to deliver aid to newly accessible, newly recovered areas. And the NGOs are worried that is the government able to sustain these newly recovered areas? So the, the, the dilemma is who should be now going in to support is it the stabilization actors or is it the humanitarian actors? So I just wanted to, if we have time, to hear your thoughts on this stabilization angle as well in, in terms of this discussion. Thank you. Do you want to pick that up, Fiona? Because that's not, that's an issue I think we've seen quite a lot of and I'm sure you've experienced. Yeah, I mean, the, the instrumentalization of humanitarian action for political and military purposes has, you know, is, has a long history and uh, it's a very difficult question because there are people suffering. So I think the equation really has to be how much good can you do? How much do you take into account that you're being instrumentalized? What harm will come from that? What's the need? I mean, thinking back and working in Somalia back in 91, 92, when we worked with with machine guns on our cars, paying militias um, for security and everything, we were contributing to the economy of war, without a question. But then you put it, that in the context of, well, when I arrived in Baidoa, 200 people dying a day of famine, you know, you have to put it in the balance against how much can you do versus how much harm you're going to do, and look at the consequences short term and longer term. So I think there's no easy answer, it has to be always this juggling um, so who'd like to, to come next? Because Nima, I know you had the final word, but it was the final online word. So there's, yeah. Maybe we can get the, the mics. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much for a fascinating conversation. I just wanted to um, flag the issue of neutrality of donor governments and in particular humanitarian donors. What does the panel think of donor governments who, on the other hand, might have political objectives, stating that they are neutral and demanding that their humanitarian or their humanitarian partners apply that neutrality? Is then neutrality not used in a way to delegitimize and um, limit the resources going to groups that actually manage to provide assistance uh, sometimes where international organizations are not able to. Thanks. Maybe we've got time for one more, one or two more, and then we're going to circle around. Hilda. Thank you very much. 
Is it on? Yeah. Uh, I'm Hilde Salvesen from uh, the humanitarian section at the Norwegian MFA. Um, you were talking about complementarity and that there is no, uh, not necessarily a contradiction between, or, or that there is no contradiction between neutrality and solidarity. But I was wondering, aren't there situations where it can be uh, dangerous when, when the humanitarian community engaged uh, aren't, do not agree on certain red lines? so that you are perceived, if you are perceived as not neutral, that can actually uh, causing a lot of risks uh, on, on other people's lives. So I was just wondering if you could comment on that. Thanks. And there's one last question at the back. Hi. Oh, thank you very much. First, my name is Carlos Pedraja, and I come from Venezuela. And I think that one of the things that happened in Venezuela when uh, the UN humanitarian response installed in the country was with civil society actors, especially local organizations that the UN started working with. Uh, one of the main things they said to him, it was that neutrality was one of the most important principles. And at some point, some of these organizations were talking about what was happening in the country and like, we don't have like any official data on social indicators. So the civil society information was really valuable for everyone in order to really address the situation. And one of the things that the UN would say to their local partners was that they couldn't work with human rights organizations or they couldn't publish what was happening because they needed to remain neutral in order to access to funds to really you know, keep up working with them. And I think that at some point they're also like harming the social networks that the civil society itself built to protect themselves uh and like the question is between many layers like how can we gain access in order to do what if we're not going to protect people like what's the point of gaining access and to what extent can we talk about a humanitarian action without protection yes that thank you fantastic um Tatiana, I'm going to turn to you um, again first. Um, questions about the role of do donor governments. What's the point of access if you can't uh, protect people as well? Um, the kind of, again, questions around neutrality and solidarity. So first of all, back to you uh, for some final words, uh, Tatiana. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I, you know, I would pose the question about um, uh, you know, access is, is, do you have access? Yeah, and, um, you know, again, I think that that's the line that you walk uh, in trying to gain the access, yeah, but, uh, but then at some point, maybe it's good to also consider um, how successful uh, that access is, yeah. Um, it seems to me that, um, you know, there, there was also a question about the, um, you know, if governments are non-neutral, but they're requiring uh, uh, humanitarian organizations to be neutral, but then what about the local organizations? And um, they're often the ones who get the, the job done because they're local, they're, uh, they know the situation, they're able to get aid into areas maybe where aid can't get to. Um, for me, again, I just think it's all like a mosaic. Uh, yeah, that there's, um, 
you know, and it seems to me that actually th that the conversations are being had, uh, I think, on a lot of different levels. I think that means that people are looking for answers, yeah, that they're not just uh, working in uh, like an old framework. Yeah, that, that I mean, there's guidelines. Yeah, but the, but you're looking at it and you're you're thinking through things again. You're looking at how do we get funding to local actors? I know that's a very active uh, discussion that's happening uh, right now in Ukraine. Yeah, how do you get, um, especially to the smaller volunteer groups that that are doing a lot of uh, a lot of the activities that that you know they're accepting certain risks that larger organizations wouldn't accept. Yeah, and there's a there's a whole discussion on how do you how do you reach them. Yeah, and I think that we're in the middle of it. I think it's something that needs to be, um, you know, continued. And I think that where uh, where questions are raised and where there's an openness to really discuss what the issues are, then you find you can find answers. You know, I think in Ukraine that they are finding answers. Uh, maybe not. Um, uh, maybe they're not all very clear cut, but there there are you know streams happening. They're they're finding ways to start getting funding to local actors, to the ones who are doing um, a lot of the work on the ground. So, again, I think it's that mosaic of, of um, the mosaic and then understanding that it's not a completed picture. Yeah, it's not, it's not a finished painting. You're still in the process and that you, you, keep, you keep at it. Yeah, and there isn't a template. Um, Fiona, do you want to come in? There's lots of questions around putting organizations at risk, uh, the role of donor governments, local organizations, yeah, what do you want to pick up? Um, no, I, I think that's very interesting, Patrick's question about, um, I, I didn't know that aid uh, that donors were, uh, you know, were forcing people to act in a, a neutral fashion. And it seems, it seems quite strange. I mean, I think neutrality really makes sense for an organization like the ICRC. Its mandate is between states. It does some very, um, you know, its engagement is with, with with governments, with states. We we try to to visit people in in detention centres, which are run by the state. We try to um, repatriate dead bodies across borders. We go across. We try to go cross line to deliver um, humanitarian services. There is just this whole range of activities, um, and I think that. You know we're better off by by adopting this posture of neutrality in order to to try to make the best of of that whereas that's not the case for everybody so i don't think it should be the case for everybody so coming back to uh um sarah sarah's point you know yeah it's um it's it's, it's not one size fits all for everybody yeah i'm going just uh well, the example from uh, Venezuela, actually, we face the same pressure, same thing in Syria. And I want you to highlight that sometimes uh, forcing local organizations to follow this uh, uh, standard of uh, neutrality sometimes put the local organizations themselves at risk and their own uh, volunteers. Uh, by because uh, as you said civil, uh, civil society plays a major role in in conflict not only in delivering assistance but also in mobilizing efforts and in reporting incidents and uh, 
uh, and when uh, the civil society fail their own people in uh, addressing the root cause of their suffering and problem and conveying their, their voices and their messages uh, from the ground, they lose their legitimacy and they look only as 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 employees or people work to 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 do money and uh, by through the humanitarian work so legitimacy is very important and legitimacy comes from inclusivity and uh, transparency and real representation of their own uh, communities so while i understand the need for organizations like icrc purely neutral hopefully that would help them really to access everywhere which which is not working in Syria anyway. But at the same time, there should be a need, uh, there should be different partnerships with different local actors in each area who understand their own context and are able to help their own communities and at the same time uh, uh, represent their le le legitimate demands and uh, and needs. Mm -hmm. Azalina, you have the final words. Okay. Um, I think what's emerging for me is uh, what Tatiana talked about, is it's a mosaic. Um, but what I've heard from you is, is something much more, I guess, um, you know, black and white. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, um, whether you see, you know, a complementarity of different approaches in a place like Myanmar, or whether you think the situation currently is so extreme that actually this kind of more um different approaches for different organizations is not valid currently um i would agree that uh, neutrality is not for everyone and after all uh, as that uh, as you said fiona it's an operational choice um definitely um not a choice for the local actors mm -hmm. who are the victims themselves they have to take stand uh, so that's one but I would uh, not agree for those using neutrality as the justification <laughs> and not being transparent mm -hmm. and clear about the, the intent. And we are, if we are not transparent and clear about the intent, then that will lead to mistrust and mm -hmm. trust is very important. So I think if donors or who are basically donors are governments, right? <laughs> um, should not, the way I say it, use neutrality. Uh, just be clear about it. You need to uh, be uh, inside the country because you fear that the, the facto authority will remain in power and you, you cannot uh, close uh, the office or the embassy, you have to maintain relationship with the so-called junta. That's a political decision. Be clear about it. But don't force others. <laughs> and don't force, you know, neutrality. I think that's, um, okay. That's, uh, okay. <laughs> I will not say. So so be clear about it. Be clear about it, uh, uh, the intent. Now, um, the black and white. Um, I thought that we could actually seek for complementarity com in the case of Myanmar, right? But right now, the situation is black and white, particularly with the new registration uh, law introduced by the junta, 
whereby it requires everyone, not, not only the international uh, human actors, but also the local and national actors, and whoever that uh, work with the international actors, to get themselves registered mm. with the junta. And if they are not registered with the junta, they will get uh, pursued. They will be put in jail. You know, the staff will be put in jail. They're actually making the situation black and white. So the situation doesn't allow them to be in gray zone anymore, to be floating. They have to choose because if they actually allow themselves to be in the uh, gray area, they actually uh, uh, put their staff and the partners and everyone working with that, uh, you know, in danger, right? Mm -hmm. So people have to choose. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure whether the mosaic can be applied in the case of Myanmar. This is right right now the, the biggest debate happening. Mm -hmm. It's a black and white situation and it's, it's the situation that for, for, force us uh, to do so. I'm going to end here. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for keeping us uh, late. Um, we've got colleagues outside that need to transform this room. But, um, and I'm also conscious, Tatiana, that we're keeping you online uh, very late in Ukraine. So a huge thank you. I'm not going to try and wrap up. I think there's a lot to take from this, but a huge thank you to all of the panelists for just a really fantastic and rich discussion. I wish we could continue because there's so many themes emerging. But yeah, thank you all. Thank you, Tatiana, for joining us from uh, Kiev. Thank you, Adelina, for uh, coming from Indonesia. And to you, Farouk, for joining us uh, here also. Um, and uh, Fiona as well. So a huge thank you. Thank you all of you for coming in person. We're so excited to see uh, you back in the room. Um, and yeah. Thank you so much.